Yes, we're back with another rider, another episode. Today we have Connor in the house and he's an interesting guy and he works for a big corporation that most of us probably have in our house. And he also has his own website company. So we're going to delve in one or two and see what he has to share with us and what we can learn. Nice to have you here today, Connor. Cheers, Simon. Thanks a lot, mate. So tell us, Connor, what were you like when you were in school? What was I like when I was in school? God, that's a great question. Very different to what I'm like now, I think. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, was a little, I was a little bit fat. Honestly, I always worked really, really hard. I don't think academia necessarily came that natural to me. It was something that I always had to work really hard for. I was a bit of a kind of floater, I guess. Just went around different people and kind of different friendship groups. And then actually a big kind of, a very kind of pivotal point for me. I, I, start, I started playing tennis at school. A really good friend of mine, Chris Cole. So he plays, he was kind of, Top ten in the country, went out to the US on a scholarship. He got me into tennis when I was pretty young. Then I got a little bit more confident, lost a bit of weight, started performing a bit better at school. And then, yeah, just put myself on a track um, towards business, always kind of so wanted to be a bit of an entrepreneur kind of thing. Just to jump in there, you were playing tennis for how long? I played tennis for, oh God, a while. Probably started maybe like year seven. Were you like semi-pro or was it just fun? So I competed at a pretty high level. Played out in the US for a little bit as well. Okay. That was quite fun. Never quite got to the level that I wanted to get to. But I think you're quite lucky in a way because then I was kind of taken off of a tennis track and then put more onto an academic track where I could use that to then, you know, start mm. to build a business, start to work for kind of bigger corporations. So. Mm -hmm. But just staying on the tennis yeah. thing, what was a typical training session like for you and what mindset did you find you needed to have? Tennis was easy for me to kind of get into a mindset. I think it's actually probably been one of the things in my life that I'm, I find it easy to really switch off from the outside world and focus on on tennis. I was speaking to a friend about this the other day. It's kind of, when you, as soon as you get onto the court, everything else that happens, kind of all, whatever else is happening in your life is kind of gone in this out of the window. And then it's much, much easier for you to then focus on things like technique. It comes quite natural. So it was always a really nice way to kind of clear my head. In terms of typical training session, changes a lot. You, you get on court, like you can have longer training sessions, much shorter ones. You get on court, generally, I used to have a really great coaching network in a, in a really great school called St. Peter's, big comprehensive in Gloucester, big sports school. And we had a great tennis team. Uh, coach, you'd get on court, you'd hit about, well, you know, probably a few thousand balls. <laughs> you'd do some drills, so kind of, you know, you'd start in the service box, get back, your coach would just drop some balls to you, tell you where to hit them. Uh, you'd work on different things, like, obviously. So he would throw a ball at you, mm. and then he says he wants it in this corner or that corner, that kind of thing. Yeah, it depends. You know, you kind of, you'd do a series of kind of drills. So you'd hit, like, I don't know, you'd have, like, a rally of, like, six cross court, and then you'd try and hit one down the line, and then the point's open, so then you'd play competitively with the coach. That's kind of just one thing. But then sometimes you do more like technical shot based stuff. So say for example, you're trying out a new grip or you're trying to do something a bit more. I haven't spoken about this for years. It's brilliant. So you're trying to hit, you know, with a new grip, hit a bit more top spin, a bit more height over the net so that you're more consistent. You'll just hit and you'll play technically and you'll just try and rip balls over the net and you'll hit hundreds and hundreds of your coach just feeding them to you. But it obviously builds that muscle memory and that, that ability for you to then go mm. into a competitive situation and actually, actually mm. do that. Were you doing other things like jogging, swimming? Yeah, a lot. A lot. Actually, I picked up some pretty bad injuries not playing tennis. So I, I used to row a lot. 
not on water, but on a Concept 2 machine. Rowing's really good for you, full body. Also, I'm, I'm not the tallest guy, relatively, well, like 5'9". So fitness was always massive for me. It was always, a, you know, I couldn't fall back on having height and just being able to dominate on a court. I had to have a really, you know, strong level of fitness and I always really take care of my body in terms of spending time with some yoga, you know, just making sure that my body's in, in, in pretty good condition. And how old are you about this time? Oh, so you had a very good regime. Yeah, I did actually. I actually stayed on at school in my sixth form for another year to play pretty much train full time. Me and another friend of mine, a guy called Oliver Duffy, he was an incredible athlete, played tennis with me from the beginning. And yeah, I kind of, everyone went off to university so I could really focus on it. And yeah, I just got into the best shape of my life. Uh, like I did, I, I did pick up a couple of injuries. Like I said, rowings like permeated the disc in my lower back, which is pretty, pretty rough. But Nothing that kind of physio could, could sort out. But no, look, I mean, I, 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 love, I love sport. Um, I trained for, trained for a half Ironman just before I moved to Paris. I moved back from Paris about a year and a half ago. And I trained for a half Ironman, which was insane. I mean, I thought my training regime was crazy to play tennis, but it was insane because I was learning how to swim again and I was learning how to kind of... Oh, this is all off the yeah. back of your slip disc. Well, off the back of my slip disc, no. So I, I kind of took a break from sport for a while when I started, you know, working properly. Then I thought I really want to do something again and I want to get back into that routine and, and, and start, you know, that athletic life again. So I, I signed up for a, for a half Ironman. Do you know what that is? Yeah, it's, it's like... Triathlon. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So it's 70.3 miles in total. The majority is made up of obviously cycling, running and then swimming. But, man, it was so good because I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't really swim. Like, I'd never really swam, like, competitively... So for me to just get into that habit and learn, you know, something new, it's just really, really cool. Mm. Okay, that's that's good. So, what age did you what age did you stop playing tennis then? Well, twenty two, I think. I stopped at twenty two. And did you play ever play at like nationals, Wimbledon, things like that? I played quite a few national tournaments. No, never played. Never played. Never played or been on the kind of track to be honest being a slam a lot of my hidden partners have but yeah it was just something that was kind of taken from me I think a little bit well prematurely mm-hmm. but, but you know truly I, I think that's probably some of the best times in the sport not a lot of people can make it in the sport mm-hmm. world, right obviously I mean that goes without saying but what I think is really really detrimental sometimes is that a lot of people think to be an athlete to train that much you've got to think you can make it yeah yeah and I think that when you think you can make it, you kind of, you push a lot of other things in your life to the side because you're so obsessed with kind of getting to the same goal. So you, you know, you lose relationships, you lose, or you, you don't take the risks and you don't go to, you know, university maybe, or you don't go to college or you kind of miss out on a few of these different crucial parts of life. You might choose not to take a specific job because you think you're going to make it. For me, I was super lucky because I was at just that age when I had to stop playing. So I was almost kind of, able to then put tennis to the side and focus on other things. I've got people who were, who were incredible, you know, athletes, incredible tennis players who then have missed out on such, you know, opportunities in their life because they thought they were going to make it. And it's, and it's sad. But. But wouldn't you say at least the main thing is that they went for it? Yeah, for sure. So you're going to have to sacrifice things in life anyway. For sure. I completely, completely agree. And I, I mean, I can tell you a story now about how I've just sacrificed something massive and and it's really kind of put me in a, a bit of a, a difficult situation. But I don't think it wasn't 
I, th- I think your point is that like obviously they get to they got to give it all and try their hardest to be able mm-hmm. to be able to make it. So did I. But something like you know an injury was what kind of held held me back. Mm. I hear. So what was that? You said you had to make a sacrifice. What was that you made? Oh, it's a little bit of a crazy one to be honest. And look, not a lot of people, I guess. Not a lot of people will probably care too much about this, but I'll, I'll go with it anyway. I think. So I am um, a little bit about my background. So I used to work for. I can mention this company because I don't try to work for them. Actually, I think I'll just caveat by saying, you know, even if I mention the companies that I work for, mm. none of this, you know, everything that I'm saying now is completely, you know. Your, your opinion. My opinion, my knowledge. I used to work for L'Oreal, so mm-hmm. in the beauty and cosmetics industry, so worked for them for about seven years. Met my ex-girlfriend. We were together for about just over four years. And, you know, great girl. We lived together in London. It was incredible. Then... We both met together at L'Oreal, which was obviously great. Then I moved to Paris. I think at, at this stage in your career, I think you have to be a little bit selfish, especially if you, you know, want to take those opportunities and, and, and really make them work for you. Then I, it put immense pressure on our relationship. Came back, moved in with Cicely. Everything was brilliant. And then all of a sudden, I get an opportunity after being back in London for about a year, just over a year, mm-hmm. new opportunity to go and work for another big company, but probably in one of my, my dream roles, something I've always, always worked for, always wanted. And yeah, so I, I, I kind of, I turned around to my, my girlfriend at the time, I said, look, this is the situation. I'm gonna go through this interview process. If you want me to stop at any stage, just tell me, because once I get to a certain point in this recruitment process, I won't stop, and I will. I will fall in love with. Like, I'll become obsessed with getting that. And um, you know, she was like, "No, you know, fine, great opportunity, blah blah." blah. It was brilliant. You know, she's always supported me in, in the mm-hmm. best way, and she she really did. And then I got the job, lo and behold. And the role that I'm in now, I had to split my time between London and Bristol. So as soon as I got out, I got the role, handed my notice in at my my previous job. She just turned around. And just, I, I can't do it. I can't do it again. And I had a choice then to kind of turn around and say, well, first of all, I had a choice in the past not to go to Paris, not to put that pressure on my relationship. I had a choice not to take this other job, not to kind of, you know, put even more pressure on my my relationship when I knew how bad it was before in terms of the pressure in in Paris. And I had that choice then when she said that, to turn around and say, fine, I'm not going to take the role. but for me, that was something because my career is so much to me. I just wanted to give everything I possibly could and not leave any stone unturned in the kind of the journey towards reaching my dream job. And subsequently, I've lost my relationship for, mm. for over four years. For it. And that's really tough because, you know, I'm mm. 28 now. I'm going into a position in my life where um, it's really important to have that stability. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's a, it's a difficult, difficult pill to swallow. But that, that's just an example. Mm. The, it wasn't there an opportunity she could have come with you. Also, you wouldn't want to do that. I mean, she's also in a very similar boat to me. She's really ambitious. She works at a big organisation. She's great at her job. And for me to turn around and say, "Well, come to Bristol, move, move to Bristol with me," <laughs> be uh, be pretty rough. I mean, but look, we had those conversations, but. It was, all, it, was, it was something I never wanted to do. There was a point when she was going to move to Paris. But again, you know, at the beginning, you can't kind of impose that pressure on someone when they're as ambitious as you. 
I mean, she was slightly younger as well, so it probably would have been quite easy for me to be like, no, come on, like, mm. head over, mm. let's go do it together kind of thing. Promise mm. a lifetime of happiness and being together. But I mean, it doesn't, you know, you don't want to do that with someone. You don't ever want to be... Yeah, I actually didn't want to do that. Mm. So going back to the tennis thing, when you were in America, when you moved to America, what was that like? Oh, America was insane. So I spent some time in, in the state of Michigan. Do you know Michigan? Yep. I know of Michigan from the yeah. movies. Yeah, no, it's pretty, honestly, it's pretty good. So Michigan's a special place because it's really flat. And not a lot of people think that it's... Um, <laughs> too kind of sexy or anything but um, man, the place has so much history because you know you have uh, Detroit it's like Heather it's the home of like automobile yeah. it's like automobile world um, General Motors so obviously all the big kind of car manufacturers like Ford GM they all came, came from there mm -hmm. then um, it, it was obviously thriving one of the most thriving areas in America one of the most incredible cities so obviously I think it's um, it's not blue it's blue to Chicago but I think it's Motown so Motown obviously comes from Detroit, really, really cool. Mm. Incredible, incredible like communities of people, great food. But it was thriving as soon as the power industry was offshore and it started, started moving to other countries, it just kind of fell dead in the water. Plummeted, there was, yeah. yeah. There was no kind of funding from the government, which is really sad because they have so much rich infrastructure to kind of house that thriving kind of period of, of, of like, I guess, prosperity. And, and then all of a sudden it just kind of disappeared. So that obviously, what comes with that, you know, lots of stories and lots of, you know, influential figures who used to live there and be such a big part of that city. So it was so, so inspiring to be around, around the likes of Detroit. I lived on the other side of the state, which was an area called Grand Rapids. Grand Rapids, Grand Valley State University. And it was, Grand Rapids is also a great, a really, really cool city. So it's on the side of Michigan, which is closest to Chicago. Mm -hmm. So I spent a lot of time when I was there in Chicago, home blues. Chicago's a great city, it's like a more intimate version of New York, very slightly cleaner. Mm. Um, <laughs> it is, yeah. honestly, it's insane. And yeah. And I, you were tw in your 20s at yeah, this time. Man, it was so cool. And Grand Rapids was actually known as, it's coined Beer City. So in the Midwest, which is this part of America, basically it's where all the big brewers come from. So like bush light, natural light, and then all, you know, you've got these kind of like microbreweries there which pop up absolutely everywhere and there are tons of them in Grand Rapids. There's one of my favorite ones called Founders, Founders Beer. They actually sell now in like Tesco and stuff. So it's crazy to see how they've grown, but honestly, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a magical place. Weather is amazing. Crazy extreme seasons. It was like minus 15 in the winter, snowing, all the way back to kind of, you know, 27, 28 degrees in the summer and it's just scorching hot. Mm -hmm. But yeah, man, it's so good. Did, what was the culture differences for you that you had to adapt to? I think that, it's a good question. I think it, I think it was more so, if I was 30 and I was going to America, I'd find it way more difficult because of those differences. So I think, because I was really young, I was still really malleable, I was like a sponge. So I could still take on all of that. I think America has a ma had a massive, massive role to play in shaping me and the person that I am today. One of the biggest culture shocks, well, not culture shocks, but one of the biggest cultural differences, I think, is people have this kind of innate level of, I don't know if confidence is the word, but I think it's more kind of 
you can do it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I know what you're saying. And honestly, I think what that comes with is a ton of different, really influential personality traits. So, for example, people are super outgoing. You're going to have a chat with someone anywhere. You know, be on the train, be on the suitcase. Lately, you know that you're not from that country or maybe, you know, that city. And someone will turn around to you, but hey, do you need help? Do you know where you're going? You'll never get that in London, ever. Or rarely, anyway. Do you think? Do you think that was because it's Michigan and not New York? No, because this was in the likes of Chicago. Oh. I mean, you're right, obviously. Big cities are a little bit different, but yeah, I think, I think, yeah, culturally, everything's much bigger, and you hear that a lot, and it's a bit of a cliche, but it's true. People are very outgoing. I love the people in the States. I, I really do. There is a kind of attitude. People talk about the American dream and how it's dead. I don't think so. It's kind of what you make of it. And I think... Yeah, I think it's a very inspiring place, which I like. It was, it was good fun. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so was the tennis regime harder there than it was here? Well, naturally, when you're playing with the team, the majority of my time playing tennis in the UK was more independent. So you put pressure on yourself, but you put pressure on yourself to win just, just because of you, because you want to. When you're in the States, you're part of a bigger team and the club that I would obviously, well, not the club, but obviously the uni, you kind of had a bit more of an invested interest with those people, not just yourself. So naturally, yeah, you, you train harder, I think. You spend with the gym. You want to maintain a level of fitness. I've got friends who play at a much higher level. My friends, my friend Chris, he's, uh, so, you know, he was out in Chicago for a little bit, played, played a lot of tennis there. And, Oh, no education. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you have education out there, but I mean, when you, when, like, when you're when you're in high school or when you're in, you know, sixth form or whatever it might be, there's always something else to do. You know, you've got lessons, your classes, and when you get a little bit older, you can pick and choose what you want to do. University in America is very liberal as well, so it's not like you're put on this kind of plan and you're gonna, I don't know, just not deviate. Yeah, yeah. It's weird. It's a, it's a really weird one. One of the things I loved about the um, the US um, education system, well, at a university level, because the US education system and the equivalent of a comprehensive level in the UK is absolutely destroyed. It varies by state, but I mean, I'm not really going to go into that now. It's a whole new can of worms, but. So, just to understand, so you're saying the US at university level is better than the British? I think so, yeah. Okay. Because it's the, it's the setup, so it's more liberal. You've got you can tune to take a three credit class if you want to in tennis. You can get a three credit class in tennis or go towards your degree. And it, what it does is it kind of, it really promotes that. Everything's everything, valuable. Well, yeah, you can learn different things. It's not like you're educated. Like, for example, my sister's about to go to university. Mm-hmm. She's been making a choice now for the last four, four to six years in terms of what she's going to study, which will put her on the track for the rest of her life. So. You know, she has to now go that track. She wants to study history. So she's going to go down that track. She's going to study history. And, you know, she'll feel like she has to do that now for the rest of her life. So she's almost like cutting off mm. what she's going to learn at a higher academic level. Mm. I mean, not quite, but majoritarily so. At when she's 16, 17. 
Whereas in America, you get to university and it's just the next chapter. Mm. You go and you know do different credits. Yeah, fine. A lot of people know what they want to go and major in, but a lot of people also don't. And I don't think that's a worry here if you don't know what you're going to do when you're 18 in the summer. Yeah, so it's more flexible based on the fact that of your age and you you're not really going to know definitely what you want to do. Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay, I'm with you. It takes yeah. the pressure. No, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. It just makes sure I had to understand what you were point. It's all about me learning. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you finally left America and you came home. Did, ah, tip, cliche question. Did you have any negative experience where you thought, ah, my life's in jeopardy here. I need to get out. Wait, say that again? Did you have any uh, cliche experiences where uh, you thought, ah, I'm going to get robbed here or I'm going to be in trouble? Yes. Yeah. No, man, I was fearless. I was young. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I mean, look, like, it was really, it was, I travelled a lot. I was, I was a uni student. Look, my, back, my background, I know one of the first things that you said when I got into the car earlier on is that I sound a bit posh. Yeah. Like Conor McGregor. Yeah. I get that a lot. I, I, don't, really, I don't really know why. I think it's kind of the... the well, you're Irish descent. Yeah, I am, actually. So you must get ridiculed when you go back. Yeah, no, I do. <laughs> <laughs> no, I get really cool when I go back to Gloucester, let alone Bantle Island. But no, I, I think, look, just just to kind of caveat, because this is a big part of what I'm about to say, I, yeah, I've got a good, good friendship group. A lot of them kind of went to you know, paid schools and international schools and everything else. I think also when you're in the kind of careers that I'm in, yeah, I guess there's a lot of people. There's a lot of people who, like I said, do have that kind of much more privileged background. That was never me growing up. I had a very, very humble background. My mum's mum's a carer. Dad, well, mum is a carer. Dad is a service engineer on, on airplanes. Okay, aviation engineer. Yeah, aviation. That's good. But as a first to go to university of, of my generation, which I think is a huge honour, and I'm mm-hmm. really, really proud of myself for that. And that kind of always, like I said earlier on, it, I've always kind of been a little bit of a float around different people and take little things from them and be a bit of a sponge and that was exactly what I did in America and on, honestly I I was I was a bit fearless I, I would just you know like D- Detroit's not a safe place for example mm. but I was never really sheltered when I was growing up mm. so I always kind of recognised and, and understood that it doesn't matter where I'm going you have to keep your wits about you make sure that you know you act appropriately in you know certain situation never put yourself in too many dangerous situations and I was a really good runner so if I did get into trouble I'd run really fast <laughs> <laughs> but, but but no I, I think uh, yeah almost just having that openness about so I used to travel around, I used to travel around a lot on uh, Greyhound buses mm-hmm. oh my god man they're scary is it? They are unbelievable. Really? Why? Yeah. Where they drive or the people on the chain? Just, on just the... everything. Like the, like the areas in the cities where they always have the Greyhound stations. Yeah. This, this is really funny though because I, I was always a little bit petrified to go on those things because you never know which kind of... Well, basically, right, to give you an example. So when, when you state penitentiary or come out of jail in America... You get a bus. Yeah, <laughs> You get one of those tattoos, essays. Yeah, you get one of those buses. And I'm there because I'm a broke student trying to travel and see my way around America. I'm trying to get on these buses and I'm sat next to something. You know, I read oh, I, I read this article. I was on a route once from, I think, D.C. to Toronto. I'm not sure. I think it was that. 
And um, I read an article, because I was like, what are these Greyhound buses? Probably the first one I got. And there was this story about a guy who was let out of jail. And he, uh, he decapitated a student on a bus. Really? Yeah. I wonder what the student did wrong. Yeah, right. You go. A lot of the time, people forget there's a catalyst. 100%. That guy doesn't just walk. It's very unlikely that guy just walks up to said person and yeah. for no reason. You, it can happen, but most of the time, that person did something, yeah. even if without knowing. Yeah. <laughs> and then he ends up with no hair. No, it's rough, honestly. But I, I mean, yeah. Also, so yeah, I, I kind of I was coming to I was going from Grand Rapids to Detroit once on a Greyhound bus. And by the way, I traveled the entirety of the West Coast on a Greyhound, on Greyhounds. And it was, you know, dirt cheap and it was so good. Usually people get like a, like a Mustang muscle car and they're like going like soft top from like north to south, like California. Not me, I did it on a Greyhound, it was amazing, it's a good story. But I came into Detroit once and I heard this massive like explosion. I swear to God, I've never been so scared in my life. Cause I was like, right, I'm in the world, I'm, I'm in this really dangerous part of Detroit. I'm coming in on a Greyhound bus, it's like, like, you know, early evening, if I hang around, it's gonna get like dark soon. And I looked to my right and, and there, was, there were crowds of people and there was, there was a yellow school bus turned upside down with tape. Mm -hmm. So I thought, oh my God, there's been a bomb. Like, mm -hmm. there's like something serious is happening. I, you know, I, I do not want to get caught up in this. They were filming the Batman Superman movie and it was Ben Affleck on Fleck on, on set. <laughs> <laughs> so there's me thinking, oh my god, worst part of the toy, I'm gonna die. This is horrendous, there's been a bomb, there's a bus that's just turned around. They were filming a movie. Yeah, I know, the Dark Knight thing. Yeah, that's right. The, yeah. yeah, it was like, yeah, anyway, it was, it, honestly, it was, it, was, it was so funny. And I, I had this like sense of relief, and you just hear people like, Ben Affleck, Ben Affleck, and I'm just like, oh. And they're just shouting. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah give us a dollar, man. Go on, help, bro, help. <laughs> So you, so you moved to France. Yeah. What was life in? Was you were in Paris? Yeah, man. Paris. What was like Paris? Same. Is it? Mm. Because I know there. Obviously, the English aren't much loved from the French point of view or Paris Parisian. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's. Uh, I think it's just one of those playful things. I've got a lot of friends in France. I think the French culture is a really interesting one because I think that because of the revolution and everything, they're, they're, they're very defensive, I think, subconsciously as a, as a culture. And that's a sweeping statement, that's definitely a paradigm in mind, but seriously, I think, it, I think it's almost admirable that they've managed to keep so much of their culture from so long, so, so long ago that impacted their lives, and then have that kind of come out in their day-to-day -day attitude towards people. So obviously, you know, you have the UK and they want to leave the European Union, fine, that's our prerogative, but the French are defensive over that, you know? I mean, they're, they're defensive, they think they have the best city, which, which they do, they think they have the best food, some of which they do, some of which they don't. They sit, think they're the best in sport, I don't know, they're just, a, it's a really interesting culture. Loads of people told me when I was gonna go to France, you're never gonna make friends with French people. They're gonna isolate themselves, keep themselves themselves. You'll probably make friends with some expats and you'll probably meet some other English people, but yeah, you're not gonna make even friends with, with, uh, with the French. I went over and it was the middle of the pandemic. So I was locked down in my flat for a big chunk of it, which was honestly quite tough. And I made so many French friends. All of my French are French. I think I made my house a designated like party house. And they all, they all <laughs> is that how bad things got? <laughs> okay, that, is how, that is how bad things got. I just, 
I was just picking people up on off the street, asking them to come up. Monsieur, monsieur. <laughs> no, I was. I swear to God, I was. I, I made really good friends with a bartender downstairs. His name's Dene. Right, so you live on top of a bar. Yeah, I used to live in like a beautiful like house mania building in, in Montmartre, which is, well, it's in the Milfiem, which is the ninth arrondissement. Um, and it's a really cool place. And there's some beautiful, beautiful architecture there. And I stayed there for a l little bit. And yeah, my flat was, well, my flat was nice because I'm an expat. So you always get a nice flat when you're an expat. And that was, was that provided for you by the company? Yeah. Okay. Well, they give me an allowance. Mm. So yeah. you said they got the best city and they are. What, 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 what would you say makes them the best city in Europe? Uh, I said they think they have the best city. Oh, okay. And I think, I, th I think they do. Um, and okay. I'll explain why. I think, well, one of the best... First of all, London's the best city in the world. Okay. I just want to. I just want to like caveat that because it is the best city. There's no no one in the world doesn't like London. Come on, you'll agree. But I I've been to some cities. It depends on what you're looking for. So so my next question by yeah. by what measure? So that's why I'm yeah, asking yeah. you. I think it's super picturesque. It's beautiful when the weather's nice. You walk outside and you're like, wow, I'm in Paris. There's a status about Paris. Something quite chic, fashionable. It's a really inspiring place to be from that side of things. So obviously, you know, that's fun. Then, I think their work-life balance is really, really strong. Um, and I think that, look, this changes because it depends who you work for, what company you work for. My job was really stressful. My, the old company I worked for were renowned for having, you know, push you hard to develop you, to develop the business. They had a big growth mindset, which was, you know, really exciting to be a part of. But at the same time, come August, it doesn't matter what the French what anyone else will say, like, come August, the French war war and holiday, everyone cares out of Paris. Paris is just kind of like a ghost town. And yeah, you've kind of got, people, people do what they want to do. That's a massive sweeping statement, but I think that's probably the best way I can describe the French, they, they do what they want to do. You know, when, you, when you're in lockdown, we, we, the, the culture in the UK, we live in fear. There's always, I think it's a very paranoid, you live in a lot of fear. I think in France, if they don't play by the rules, and again, this comes back to the culture thing that I spoke about earlier on. If we're, if we're locked down in the UK and we, we've got you know, a curfew, or you know, pubs and bars and shops can't open, or they have to close at a certain time, all of which we saw happening throughout the pandemic, people will follow and abide those rules okay fine people aren't isolate always and people did leave the house and they did things mm. but i'm talking about the average Br british and, person yeah but i'm also i'm talking about the, like that shop over there they were they wouldn't open against the rules of, of, of lockdown mm. um or neither would the new news agent because they know that if they get caught they're going to be closed down in france you're walking down the street and you can just knock on someone's door and they'll open their shop up for you even though that it's lockdown mm. they have you know big great big white transit vans flying around the city if you called one and you open the door and it's like walking into a news agency they weren't allowed to do that but they do it because they do what they want and you know you get the police walk past they, they wouldn't bat an eyelid so I think that, that I don't know it's just really interesting that they, they just do what they want <laughs> and I love that I found it super refreshing and yeah I, I think that's why but look other than that it's, it's not that deep why is it one of the best cities in the world the food's great the restaurant scene is, is great you know great great wine cheap wine good culture of going out and having a drink in the evening you know like you've got people they don't have lager louts do they 
Lager louts, like you know, like we get real binge drinking. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. don't really have that. No, not really. It's more kind of. I think it's more of a civilized drinking culture. Yeah, and but, would you say that's because they drink throughout the day? Uh, because you can buy like a a, a a glass of beer in McDonald's kind of thing. Yeah, I, I don't know because I mean, you would get you you would you would see people on like a Monday or a Tuesday and have a glass of wine. I think, yeah, I think they're really good at moderation. But again, I think it just comes from culture and French drink, I think, from, from when they're quite young. I think it's almost very much like intertwined in their life and socially. But look, you're going to get binge drinkers out there as well, obviously, but mm -hmm. I think not, not as many out there. But yeah, mm -hmm. I, I, don't really, I don't really know why I don't know enough about it. But mm -hmm. So, on another note, you spoke about this, your company, what's it called? So, it's called Not, it's called not, not Another NFT. Um, <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. so what is that about then? It's a good question. Basically, me and my two co-founders now, so we have a team based in London, and I've been a marketeer now for my entire working career. And there are so many things that I wish I could do with my customer base and my shopper base that I couldn't do because the technology wasn't there. So one of those things is actually building them into a community and engaging with them better and making them feel more special, more exclusive, mm -hmm. making them feel like they're more engaged stakeholders of a brand, not necessarily just a customer. Mm -hmm. So I, I became really interested. So my two co-founders, they used to invest a lot in technologies have a really kind of negative perception globally because NFTs were up. So NFT, NFT is a non-fungible token. Mm -hmm. It's basically a digital asset that's on the blockchain that is fully unique and it only belongs to one person and you can trade it and lose or make money. Obviously, no financial advice. Now, <laughs> Get screwed for that. Have you known anyone who's been sued for giving wrong financial advice? I don't know anyone personally. See, but people do get sued. But no, I mean, look, you can do what, I, do what you want with NFTs, it's not my, yeah. not my bag. But NFTs can also be used so much more, than, they can be used in so many different ways, not just. Art. It's not just about collecting art, or it's, it's not an artist, you know, putting paint on a, a piece of paper, taking a photo of it, minting it, putting it onto the blockchain and making loads of money. Yes, you can do that, but where I come into it is using it almost to represent a membership token. So, what, what we do is basically leverage blockchain based technology, so that can be metaverses and virtual worlds to create better shop, shopping environments or more engaging and immersive shopping environments. Um, NFTs and obviously non-fungible tokens and blockchain-based tokenized marketing using that kind of working with companies as to how they can like, leverage that technology to get closer to their customers. And yeah, we, we go and we build concepts for businesses and brands and, and then we kind of come back and then we launch them. So, like I said, there's a big, big negative perception around decentralized Web3. So Web3 is the, Web3 is the actual industry that I'm, you know, I'm in business. Mm -hmm. Web3 is 
the next evolution of the internet. Right now, we're in Web 2. Well, you could argue that we're in Web 2, Web 5. And we're about to go into Web 3. And now this is all about decentralization, ownership of your own data, giving companies the information that you want to give and then them remunerating you for that information. And it's all about this kind of world of better uh, inter interconnectivity. But it's a very broad topic. So, like I said, there's a lot of negative perception and one of the biggest things that we do as a brand, one of the things that we've done quite well, is actually educate a lot on the space. So, we travel quite a bit, we go to a lot of conferences and talk about NFTs and Web3 and the projects that we're working on. We've got a partnership with Kingston University as well, so we're building what we call the Launchpad Method, which is a way that companies can, it's like a framework that businesses and brands can follow to like breed this culture of Web3 in their business and launch really strong initiatives. So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good fun. So basically you're a consultancy company for the new form of Web3 that's coming out? Okay, okay. So the job you do now, yep. you told me they don't just make vacuums, they do, what was it? Yeah, hair care. <laughs> hair care, which yeah. I found very amusing. Because I didn't really understand how they can go from one to another along that thing. Do you, can you explain the history? The history? So, look, I mean, so the company that I work for, uh, they, are, they are a growth engine and they're an innovative engine. All they do is innovate. They invest a lot into research and development. But a lot of the things that they're innovating in, they've invested in now for a long, long time. Initially and historically, obviously they had a great reputation building floor care products. And then I think our founder and kind of, yeah, his, uh, his growth mindset it's always just about leveraging exactly what they have that no other company has, which is the power of you know, airflow and things like that. Uh, and then using that to solve real-world problems that no one necessarily even think they have. Mm -hmm. So naturally then that kind of transitioned into hair care. And then they dominated, they dom they dominated that market now since about 2016. So that's an interesting one. Is that more than, so they dominated more than the L'Oreal people? I'm not going to get into this conversation just because. Okay. <laughs> no, 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 it's just, I, I just want to be careful. Yeah, I'm, okay. Actually, I'm also, I'm also, yeah, relatively new at this new company. All right, fair enough. But, but yeah, beauty and cosmetics is a very interesting industry to work in. <laughs> it is. Uh, what would you say you've learned from working in this the beauty and cosmetics and all that industry that worked that we, you wish you knew when you started? Great question. That I wish I knew when I'd started. I think that you always, when you start working, when you're young and fresh and naive, you always think that your entire career is down to you and you're the only one that can actually have an impact on how you know, well you do your job or, or, the, or the future of your career and, and that kind of trajectory and that was always something that I put immense pressure on myself. You know, full transparency, I, I still put a lot of pressure on myself now. But I think one of, the, one of the biggest things that I've learned over the last kind of seven, eight years, particularly working at bigger, bigger companies and corporates where you're surrounded with incredible talent, is that 
you're such a mere piece of your success. Yeah, fine, you want to work hard, you should really, you know, sit down and say, turn up to work on time, make sure you try and do you know, your best to, to do your job properly. But at the same time, your team is absolutely crucial. The inspiration coming from your, lead, like your leadership team is, is absolutely crucial. The infrastructure that you have around from education and people who support you is, is absolutely crucial. So you are such a small piece of your success. I mean, you can play a massive, obviously you play a massive part in that, but I'm saying that that's not all that is. You can sit down and work really, really hard on your job and put loads of pressure on yourself and isolate yourself and you'll get nowhere. Everything's about harnessing the power of the people around you and also surrounding yourself with people who are positive, who have that energy, who are you know, good at what they do, um, who care about you, who want to kind of you know, foster that culture of, of learning because that's really, really important. And they then inspire you and, and, and build you and you can learn from them and that's, that's how you grow. So I think that's probably the best thing that I've learned for sure. Okay, that's good. What does the future hold for you? Because you're starting your own company. You're also working for someone. Yeah, I think I've always I've always kind of chased financial stability, and that's not because I want to drive a Ferrari or anything like that. I mean, I, I wouldn't mind that. <laughs> but I think I think for for me, it's always been around being able to kind of give my children something like when I have children, I give them a really solid foundation, um, make sure they have a try education, make sure they have a stable kind of upbringing and I think financial stability has a lot to do with that as well. So I think that was always something that really motivated me. So I think what does the future hold? Always making sure that I'm in a position to be able to provide that is really important for me. In terms of my career, well, look, I mean, the future will continue to scale, not another NFT, more of an education hub, I think, because me and the guys and the team are really, really passionate about educating. That's a really big part of, of what we do and, and why we started the business in the first place. I'd like to continue being like a keynote speaker on that within that area. I think that's a really, really, I love doing that. I like doing that kind of thing. And then, yeah, I want to I wanna scale, I want to scale myself, my own kind of personal development with the current business that I work for at the moment. That's the beauty of working with a massive company is that you've got so many, like I said earlier on, so many talents around you. What does the future hold for me with regard to you know my mm. my career in that in that in that industry? Well, learning from these people and then mm. hopefully taking their jobs. <laughs> okay. Well, on that note, we thank you. Where can people find you on social media for um, your company? Yeah. Uh, so you can follow me on Twitter at Connor Global. So C O W N O R G L O B A L. Are you on IG? Yeah, I am. Instagram, Connor Wells, C-O-N-N-O-R. Connor Wells, 94. Wales, Wales? Wales, W-E-L-L-S. Okay, all right, and 94, okay. First name Irish, second name English. (laughs) Oh, both of you, so one of your parents Irish, the other's English? Yeah, that's English. Well, mum's not Irish, but she's from Irish descent. Her parents are Irish. Oh, okay, all right. Well, thanks a lot for that, and we wish you well. Cheers, mate. We hope that episode enhanced your life. We post an interview every day, as well as vlogging on our social media channel. Don't forget to subscribe to get our latest episode.